encourage you to get your Bibles out, open up to Matthew chapter 2 as uh, we jump into the season uh, together uh, this, this wonderful uh, time of year uh, called Advent. So I don't know if you've noticed this, you know, but uh, over the last several years, it seems like the Christmas season keeps getting earlier and earlier and earlier. So, you know, stores begin decorating sooner, music starts earlier, um, the, the movies start sooner, the parties come earlier. And and Sydney and my, my boys would attest to this. I'm kind of a Christmas purist. You know, in years past, I'm like, if anything starts before Thanksgiving, I'm kind of Scrooge. I'm like, no, I don't want it. Like, I want one holiday at a time. But this year, and I don't know if you felt this way at all, I've, I've had this thing just kind of bubbling up in me where I've just been dying for Christmas to get here sooner. And, and so normally in years past where I'm kind of opposed to Christmas starting earlier, I found myself just bubbling up with joy anytime Christmas stuff has started uh, kind of appearing. And so I think about one of our neighbors just down the street from us. They go big on every holiday. They decorate their yard for Fourth of July. I've never seen anybody do that before, but they decorate for Fourth of July. They decorate for Halloween. They decorate for Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, and a bunch of random holidays. But they, they, they go all out, inflatable and lights. And this year, there was kind of this like warning shot that was set across the neighborhood. The day after Halloween, they took down all their Halloween stuff and all the Christmas stuff went up. And you know, normally I would have been the guy going like, what are you doing? But I saw it and my heart just filled with joy and neighbors around them started picking up on the cues. And it's like our whole neighborhood went early on Christmas this year. In fact, uh, several weeks ago, Sydney and I were on a date one night and uh, we grabbed a cup of coffee and we were just driving around and there were Christmas lights all over the city. You could just see them on the hillside lit up and we said, hey, let's just drive around and look at Christmas lights because I believe there's something about the year we found ourselves in that has just stirred up that longing in so many of us for Christmas because I think Christmas brings with it this like longing for the past. You know, there's kind of like warm nostalgia. You put on the ugly Christmas sweater, you put on the good music, you, you drink the eggnog or the hot chocolate or whatever it is that you like to drink. Um, you watch your favorite Christmas movies, you do the Christmas parties. There's something about the Christmas season that brings with it warm nostalgia. And if we're really honest, even just a little bit of kind of like temporary escapism, you know, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. Like it, you, you put on the Christmas music and at least for a couple of weeks, it seems to go away. And I think in the chaos of 2020, where we've had the pandemic, we've had all this political nonsense that's been going on, you've, you've seen this bubbling up in the human spirit where we, we've, we've longed for Christmas because we want the warm nostalgia. We want the temporary escapism. In fact, what, what I think about when I drive on our street and I see all the lights that went up early, I see a glimpse of Ecclesiastes 3.11 where Solomon says, God has put eternity in the hearts of people whether they know it or not. And I think this longing for, for Christmas, it's not just cold capitalism, it's not just consumerism at its height, it's not just escapism. I believe there's this like eternal thing that's stirring up in humanity in the midst of a year that's been really challenging where people go, man, we need something good. And this is what I love about Advent. And this is this is why we, we, we embrace Advent as a church and we don't just talk about Christmas. We love Christmas, we love the music, we love the movies, we love the cultural stuff that goes with it. But the reason we embrace Advent as a church family is because it anchors us, not just in the, 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 the reality of the past, but also in the promises of the future. That Latin word Advent means arrival, the, uh, the celebration of Jesus' first arrival and the hope that comes with the second arrival of Jesus. And as a church each year, we take this month to go, how do we recalibrate our hearts, Lord, in the midst of all the noise, 
in the midst of all the stuff that's gone on, how do we recalibrate our hearts between those two realities, promises kept and promises that will be kept when Jesus returns? And so what we're gonna do for the next four weeks together, we're gonna be looking at uh, several pretty classic stories that surround the birth of Jesus, the first arrival of Jesus. And we're not just doing this to stir up warm nostalgia because we don't just think the world needs warm nostalgia. We think what the world needs is hope that's anchored in the reality of a coming king. And so we're gonna look back at some of these stories, these true historical moments, but we're not just gonna do it for the sake of looking back. We're gonna ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand how these stories help posture us as we live toward the future together, this reality that Jesus is coming. And so we're gonna do that by looking this morning at Matthew chapter two, uh, a story of some wise men that come from the east right after the birth of Jesus. But before we jump into that story, I wanna give us just a little bit of cultural context for the moment that Jesus was born into. Because if we don't understand the world into which Jesus was born, we miss out on so much of the richness of the story uh, itself. And so I'll give you just a couple of just kind of historical, um, and maybe moorings to hold on to as we think about the world that Jesus was born into. And so the first, for those of you that kind of like context, the first thing that we have to understand when we think about the world that Jesus was born into is the world was more socially connected than it had been in several thousand years leading up to the birth of Jesus. In fact, you'd have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, when the whole world spoke one language. You'd have to go all the way back to that moment to find a moment when the world was more socially connected uh, prior to the birth of Jesus. And so uh, these things began to shift right before the birth of Jesus that really set the stage for his coming in the way that it was connected socially. First, you know, several hundred years before Jesus was born, there's a guy named Alexander the Great. Maybe you remember him from seventh grade history class. Alexander the Great and the Greeks, they, they conquered most of the developed world. And one of the things that Alexander and the Greeks brought to the table is they gave most of the developed world a shared language and a shared culture. So part of the way I believe God was setting the stage for the coming of his son was he allowed the world to be connected through this, once again, having a shared language and a shared culture. But after Alexander uh, and the Greeks came through and gave that shared language and culture, the Romans came along and they took over and they built a road system that connected the developed world. And so it's kind of like an old school internet. You know, people could speak the same language and they could get to each other for the first time in several thousand years. So if you want to understand the world that Jesus was born into, first, it was a world that was socially connected. Second, it wasn't a world that was just socially connected, it was a world that was politically divided. And so several hundred years leading up to the birth of Jesus, it was just a changing of the guard. You know, uh, the Assyrians came in and they took over. Then the Babylonians came in and conquered the Assyrians. And then the Persians captured the Babylonians. Then the Greeks took, uh, the, the Greeks took over the Persians. And then the Romans. It was just one country after another. It was a cutthroat political scene. And so if you want to understand the world that Jesus was born into, it was socially connected. Number two, it was politically divided. Number three, it was religiously polarized. And so because of this connectivity and because of this political divide, all sorts of world religions begin to intermingle really for the first time across all sorts of lines. And so people would just choose from the buffet of spiritual practices and services and thought processes. You saw this in the secular world of Jesus' day. You also saw this among the people of God. Among the people of God, you had four kind of different groups religiously that were just so polarized. You had the Pharisees that wanted to be holy, but they were holy at the expense of living on mission, so they pushed themselves away from the culture. You had the Sadducees that didn't care so much about being holy, they wanted to be relevant, and so they pushed away from holiness at the sake of being connected with the culture. 
You had the zealots who thought they could bring about the kingdom of God with political power, <laughs> with, with military power. You had the Essenes who escaped out and said, just to, to, to heck with all of it. You know? and so they went out into the desert and they lived on their own. And what you see in the days leading up to the birth of Jesus is you see that God was setting the stage. The world was socially connected. It was politically divided. It was religiously polarized. Can you, can you imagine living in a world like that? You know, I was, I was just reflecting on the moment that Jesus was born into it. I go, man, doesn't that feel familiar? And here's what's so interesting. As historians and scholars look back on the moment that preceded the birth of Jesus, they said that within the hearts of some of his most devoted followers, people began crying out, hey, God, you've got to come. You've got to come and fix this brokenness because what I believe is true then is still true now, that when the world is falling apart, people's hearts tend to open to the things of God. And people started crying out for God. In fact, the language that scholars and historians used to describe the moment right before Jesus came, they said it was a season of intense messianic hope, that there was this crying out, there was this longing. And guys, it was into that socially connected, politically divided, religiously polarized world that God sends an angel to, to engage people, Mary and Joseph, to this woman who was a virgin, she had never slept with a man, and this angel comes with this declaration that was disturbing to say the least. He shows up and he says, hey Mary, you're pregnant. She goes, hey, I remember how this works. That can't be possible. And he says, God has done something miraculous in you. And you're carrying the Son of God and you're going to call him Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And he has come to defeat the works of the devil. He has come to make all things right. He's the hope. He's the one that you've been waiting for. And so the beginning of Matthew's gospel and the beginning of Luke's gospel tell the story of how Jesus, the Son of God, was born miraculously to this virgin named Mary in a small town of about 500 people called Bethlehem outside of all the fanfare of the political drama and the religious drama and the social drama of the day. And here's what's so interesting to me when you look at the birth of Jesus, it seems like on the surface, this one that people have been waiting for for thousands of years in the midst of all the heartache, it seems as though almost no one noticed. But here's what we're gonna look at over the next month together, is although most people didn't seem to notice the first arrival, the ones that did notice are gonna teach us something about how we as God's people need to wait for his second arrival. Because one of the things that the scripture makes really clear is although his first coming was kind of subtle and was easy to miss. His second coming will not be subtle and it will not be easy to miss. And there's something that we as the people of God get to learn as we look at the way that people waited with hope for the coming of Jesus. So this morning we're gonna look at Matthew chapter two together. Picks up right after the birth of Christ. I want you to start in verse one with me. We're just gonna read through the story. I'm gonna make a couple of comments and then I want us to lean in to a few, I believe, practical applications for the church today. Starting in verse one, it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked Herod, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. And I just want you to picture this for a moment. Matthew is making a historical political claim here. He's not telling a, a myth or a fable or a fairy tale. He's not just putting together a story to make sense of the world. He's saying this actually happened. A real God came through real people at real time in a real place and it was disruptive. 
these magi, these wise men, they come from the east, and they probably didn't roll into Jerusalem on three camels or three donkeys. Uh, magi during those days typically traveled in a huge entourage. A lot of times they came with armored guard. Just imagine an armored guard of former delegate uh, of, of foreign delegations rolling into Washington, D.C. right now, showing up to the White House, and a few delegates go into the White House saying, hey, we heard... We've heard that a new king has been inaugurated and we're here to celebrate. Can you imagine like, how that would go? And it says that everybody was disturbed by this moment because they knew when things didn't go well for Herod, they didn't go good for the people. Verse four, so Herod sends these magi off for a moment and he calls together, it says, when he called together all the people's chief priests, these are the pastors, these are the religious leaders. He says, and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. So they open up their Bibles in verse five. It says, he's to be born in Bethlehem, they replied, for this is what the prophet Micah has written. And they begin to read Micah chapter five here, verse two. They said, but you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi back to him secretly. He found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped at the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Verse 11, then on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. So I hate to mess up your nativity scene, but the wise men didn't show up at the stable. This probably isn't on the night of his birth. Most people think it's probably a year or so later. They make it to the house where Jesus and his family were living at the time. Verse 11, they get down and they open their treasures and they presented Jesus with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now there's there's all of this stuff that's going on in this story. Remember, Jesus is born into a world that was more socially connected than it had ever been up until that time. It was more politically divided than it had ever been up until that time. It was more religiously polarized. And Jesus, the Son of God, he is born into the midst of that. And I love this moment in Matthew chapter two where Matthew begins to give us these snapshots of the way that real people responded to this reality. And we could spend a lot of time looking at each of these people. We could look at the insecurity of Herod here. This insecure leader that was towards the end of his political reign, that had used his political prowess to, to build a lot of great things for Jerusalem and the surrounding region. This guy that had used his political power to secure at least a, a kind of surface level of peace in the region. This guy that was relationally just a chaotic nightmare. He executed two of his own sons to protect the throne. I mean, Herod was an insecure leader. Uh, that would be, be a polite way of describing Herod. He was an insecure leader towards the end of his reign. So we could, we could stop and to go, we could explore, man, what does that teach us in a moment like this? Or we could look at the religious leaders. I'm so struck by them in this story. These guys that have been waiting for thousands of years, you know, their, their, their tradition had been waiting thousands of years for Jesus the Messiah to show up, longing for the one that would come and to crush the work of the devil. They've been waiting since Genesis chapter three for this moment. And so Herod comes to them and he says, hey, I've just received news that the Messiah's been born Where's he been born? And, and so you look at these, these religious leaders, these pastors, these priests today, and they open up the word of God. They, they, they know the answer. 
They go to, they go to Micah chapter five, verse two, and they say, he's gonna be born in Bethlehem. And here's what struck me. You know, we could explore the religious leaders for a moment today if we wanted to. These leaders who knew the word of God, but they had no idea what was going on in the world all around them. They knew what the word said about the coming of Jesus, but they were unable to see in the world what it looked like when Jesus had actually come. And here's what was so stunning to me as I reflected on their, their life this week is the religious leaders of the day. They hear this news in Jerusalem, just five miles from Bethlehem, and none of them bothers to go and explore it for themselves. Just crazy. <laughs> just crazy. So we, we, could, we could go through Matthew chapter 2, and we could look at the, the insecurity of a guy like Herod. We could look at the apathy of the religious order surrounding the people in the days of Jesus' birth. But to me, I'm much more stirred by the curiosity of these unexpected visitors from the East. And so this morning, I, I don't want us to focus on insecurity or apathy. I, I want us to wrestle with what a curiosity for God in the midst of a socially connected, politically divided, religiously polarized world, what curiosity will lead us toward? And maybe more importantly, who curiosity will lead us to? And I remember when our oldest son, Micah, was born. You know, he's our, our, our first kid, hence, oldest son, um, you know, and uh, he was born, and Sydney and I had no idea who was going to show up at the hospital, but it was pretty telling both who came and who didn't come to visit him, and so we had kind of the usual suspects, you know, we had we had parents and friends and family, folks that we expected to show up at the hospital. We had a few surprises in there, but we also had a couple of folks that showed up at the hospital that totally caught us off guard. We thought, like, why in the world did this person show up? Like, why did they want to come? Why did they think we would want them to come? You know, to put it nicely, I think about this one visitor in particular. It was the day that Micah had been born, and we had had guests all day long. They'd been with us. It's about 9.30 at night. Sydney was exhausted, and I'd close the door, and I'd put the little sign in front of the door like, hey, don't disturb, basically. You know, we're, we're trying to get some sleep. And I hear this gentle knock at the door. And I think maybe it's a nurse or a doctor or something. So I go over and I open up the door, and it's this lady standing there with a gift. And I don't recognize her. She didn't, she wasn't a part of our church. She wasn't one of our friends. She wasn't one of our neighbors. And my first thought is, she's at the wrong place. There's a lot of babies being born. And so I said, hey, who are you here to see? She said, I'm here to see Micah Clayton. And now I'm a little weirded out because I'm going, how do you know his name? Why, why are you here? And so she just kind of lets herself in. I'm like, oh, we're exhausted. We're trying to sleep. She said, I'll just stay for a short amount of time. <laughs> and so, so she comes in and she gives us this gift. And she sits in our room for about 45 minutes. You know, I'm, I'm like trying to get her out of the room can't get out of the room, and, and it was so surprising to me. And as I was reflecting on the story of the Magi this week, I, I, I really kind of felt that same thing at first. I'm going, like, why are these guys here? Of all the people that, that, that traveled, why are these the guys that showed up looking for a king to be born? If you look back at verse one with me, it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the one who was to be born king of the Jews? We've seen his star, and we've come to worship him. Like, they had such clarity. They had such clarity. Like, if you dig into the, the history of the Magi, these guys probably came from ancient Persia, which is modern-day Iran. Uh, this journey for them to Jerusalem would have been about 1,700 miles 
whether on donkey or horse or camel or foot, that is a long journey that would have taken them about two months in one direction to have gotten there. And so it's striking to me as I go, you have this insecure leader in Herod, you have these apathetic religious leaders who didn't bother to go five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to check it out on their own. But for some reason, these magi from the east travel 1,700 miles on foot in this world that was socially connected and politically divided and religiously polarized, for some reason, this curiosity led them to this place of great clarity about who Jesus was. Why? It's striking to me when I, when I look at the life of these magi, what we know about the magi is it wasn't just that they were from far away, that the, that the, the context that they were in spiritually seemed so far away from, from the people of God during the days of Jesus' birth. I mean, these guys were probably um, priests of a pagan religious caste that would literally look at the stars for signs of future deities being born and future kings being born. And a part of the job of a magi during the days of Jesus is they'd be sent out in delegations to anoint and to welcome new kings. It's part of what they did. And so you look at what's happening, and at least on the cultural level with the magi, it's not that unexpected. But to me, what's so unexpected when I look at their story is, is not just that they came looking for a king, it's that they had such clarity about his identity when they showed up to worship him. And I go, why is that? So, you know, on the surface, they sort of feel like a lady standing at the hospital door, you know, don't know the family, don't know the friend, they're just here with the gift, you don't know why they're here. But when you begin to reach into their backstory, the Magi begin to make a little more sense to me. You know, 600 years before Jesus was born, there's a guy named Daniel. Maybe you remember Daniel from VBS if you're a kid, Daniel in the lion's den, or as you've read through the Old Testament, Daniel, this great man of God that uh, had lived in the promised land, but they were captured by the Babylonians, and he was taken to the east. You remember this? He lived in captivity, and then after a time, the Persians came where the Magi were from. They came and they conquered the, ba the Babylonians, and so there's this moment in Daniel chapter 5, verse 11, where we're told that the king of Persia, 600 years before Jesus was born, the king of Persia looked at Daniel and his life and made this declaration. He says, the spirit of the gods is in this guy. The king of Persia didn't worship God. He, he didn't know the right language. He didn't know how to articulate it. He just knew there was something different about Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 5, verse 11, we're told that 600 years before the birth of Jesus, Daniel, this man of God, was put in charge of all the magi. He became their boss. And so what you imagine with me for a moment, Daniel looks at these pagan priests who had made a living at looking to the stars to see the moment when a divine king would be born. And I just imagine Daniel opening up the scriptures to Numbers chapter 24 to the story of a guy named Balaam who was another pagan priest who had a significant role in the life of Israel. And it was that pagan priest, Balaam, that made this declaration in Numbers 24 that one day another star would appear in the sky pointing to a coming king. And I can almost imagine Daniel meeting his new employees right where they were, and he said, I know you look to the stars for a day that a king is coming. Let me tell you, there's gonna be a day when you're gonna see something in the heavens that's supernatural, and when you see it, drop everything you have to go toward him because he's gonna be unlike any king you've ever anointed. And for 600 years, the seed of that promise grew with curiosity in the hearts of the Magi. And here's what's so striking to me. So the moment that Jesus is born and they see the sign, they do what no one else is willing to do, and they travel all the way there. And so I found myself, you know, this week, as I've just been reflecting on the moment we find ourselves in culturally, socially connected, more connected than we've ever been. 
politically divided, more politically divided than at any point in my life, religiously polarized. I believe there's this messianic hope that's growing up in the hearts of some of God's people. What I've been praying for us as a church is that God would use this season of unrest to light a holy fire in us so that we wouldn't approach the coming of Jesus the way that Herod and his insecurities approached the first coming or the religious leaders and their apathy ignored the first coming, but like this pagan group of priests would drop everything, get on a horse, travel two months in one direction to open their treasures and to fall at the face of Jesus and to worship him in spirit and truth. And I go, I believe what God is wanting to stir up in us this Advent season is not warm nostalgia. It's not just putting on the music and watching the movies and drinking the eggnog. It's not just giving gifts to the people that we love. It's not just temporal escape from the chaos of the world that's around us. I believe that God is inviting men and women to raise up and to fix our eyes on what God is doing. And I believe the Magi have something to teach us about that. So just a couple of quick takeaways, I think, as we think about what it means to be a church living between two advents as we look at the life of the Magi. So number one, if you like to take notes, I believe that the Magi, they teach us what it looks like to watch for God expectantly. They teach us what it looks like to watch for God expectantly. These guys, they were, they were watching what was going on in the world. They were looking for the signs. They were watching what was happening in the Word of God, and they were looking for the moment that those two things would come together in the life of Jesus. I think about what Karl Barth, the great theologian, once said. He said, as followers of Jesus, in uncertain times, we need to have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. But if we haven't read the Bible first, then the newspaper won't make much sense. That as followers of Jesus, we're to be like the men of Issachar in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, that we're to understand not just the word, but the world, that we're supposed to understand the times that we're in, what's happening around us, and to look with great expectancy for God to break in right there. You know, one of Jesus' greatest critiques of the religious leaders during his day was that they had the ability to discern the word, but they could not see what God was doing in the world all around them. It's what he said in Luke chapter 12. It's what Aaron alluded to earlier when he was reading Mark chapter 13. Jesus would look at the religious leaders and he says, hey, you can look at the clouds and you can tell when it's gonna rain. He says, and you study the scriptures, but you have no idea what God's doing in this moment of history right here and right now. See guys, I, I'm convinced that so much of what God has been trying to do in 2020 is he's been trying to awaken us to the reality of not just what's happening in the word, but to what's happening in the world and to the way that those two things are gonna come together in the life and the person of Jesus. And that as followers of Jesus, we're called to know the word and to know the world like the Magi to watch with this expectancy that God is going to move. You know, I believe if the critique of the first century religious people was that they knew the word but not the world. I believe the critique of the American church in 2020 is that we don't know the word and we don't know what's going on in the world. We're just asleep. In a lot of ways, I believe the, the, the picture of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane is such a picture of the American church. Jesus said, just stay awake and watch. Stay awake and pray. And they kept falling asleep. And I believe Jesus this Advent season, he's not just trying to give us warm nostalgia. Oh, remember when Christ was born? He's not just trying to give us temporary escape. He's trying to set a fire in us to watch, to, to watch in the Word, to watch in the world with expectancy for the moment when God is going to break back in. You know, hopefully we'll have more time to dig into this. Maybe you don't even know where to start on this. 
I'd encourage you sometime this week to sit down and to read Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25, two moments from Jesus' ministry where he says, here's what you should begin to look for both in the word and in the world as you await my second advent. And so part of what we learn from the Magi, we learn what it looks like to watch expectantly. But it's not just watching expectantly. Second, we, we learn what it looks like to wait actively. You know, one of the critiques of the first century church is that when they would think about the second coming of Jesus, they'd kind of sit back on their heels and they'd get a bit lazy at times. And Jesus says, no, that's, that, that's not what the advent, that's not what my arrival should do to you. My, my, my arrival should stir you to action. It should stir you to mission. It should stir you to love the poor, to share your faith, to engage the world. That Christmas is not a nostalgic return to the better days. It's not a warm escape from the pain of what is. It, is. it is the fuel and the engine of the disciple of Jesus that pushes us towards our friends that don't yet know and love Jesus. And so when we think about where we find ourselves in the story, like the Magi, we go, hey, Lord, where we see you breaking into the world, we're not just watching for it, but we're going to wait actively. We're going to move toward it. We're going to get on our proverbial horse. We're going to move 1,700 miles in that direction. We're going to go to where the action is because it's what happens when Advent takes root in the heart. We watch expectantly. We, we, we wait. We wait actively. And we worship wholeheartedly. I think one of the greatest pictures of worship in the entire New Testament is the picture of these magi from the East after a long journey, 1,700 miles, like, they get to the house where Jesus was. They get off of their donkeys or their horses or camels, whatever. They get off of that. They lay prostrate before Jesus. And it says they open up their treasures as they worship him. It's one of the best pictures of worship. It says they give him gifts of gold and of frankincense, of myrrh. You know, these, these gifts were prophetic pictures. Whether the Magi knew that or not, it doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit knew that when he was leading them to pick out the gifts. Gold is the gift that you would give to a king. Frankincense was the scent that you would burn when you were in the temple in the presence of a deity. And myrrh was the embalming oil you would put on a body right after they died. Imagine just showing up at a hospital to welcome a newborn baby and you show up with three gifts. You show up with the crown to crown that child. You, you, you show up with the divine offering and you show up with a small casket. These were weird, offensive gifts in some ways, but what I love is the magi, they showed up to worship wholeheartedly and they knew who Jesus was. Their curiosity had brought clarity in a world that was marked by social connection and political division and religious polarization. They show up to worship Jesus as king, as God, as the one who came to die for the sins of the world. And when no one else seemed to see it, they saw it. And they lay down on their faces and they opened their treasures. I go, guys, you know, in this moment we find ourselves in, that's so connected, that's so divided, it's so polarized. What does it mean to be people that are being swept up by the power and the reality of Advent, to be a people anchored in the promise of the past and the promise of the future? I think it means we become a people that watch the word and the world with expectancy for God to move. We wait actively. We, we move toward our brothers and sisters in this season. I think about uh, some news I received last night. Sydney told me about a guy my age uh, married with three kids, on Friday afternoon, was working outside in the yard, drops dead of a heart attack. And man, it just stunned me. And, and, and it was a sobering moment. I, I went, man, I know life is short. I, I, I know, I know that, that, that we're not here forever, but there's these moments like this where I, I'm reminded 
that what God is calling us to live for is the moment when we're gonna see him again, whether that comes short and unexpected or, or it's that moment when we see Jesus face to face when he physically returns. Like we, we watch, we wait actively. We make the most of this short time that we have here on earth. We, we make the most of this season that we're in. And we worship wholeheartedly in spirit and in truth. And so what we're gonna do this, this morning is we're gonna recalibrate our hearts I don't know what 2020 has been like for you. I don't know if it's been chaotic. I don't know if it's been scary. But this morning, we're gonna take a few minutes, we're gonna sing just a few songs together, and we're gonna, just like the Magi did, we're gonna get down on our faces before the Lord. We're gonna open our hearts, we're gonna open our treasures to the Lord. And then we're gonna take communion together to end our day. We're gonna break the bread, which is the body of Jesus. We're gonna take the cup, which is the blood of Jesus. And we're gonna fix our hope on this reality that not only did God keep the promises of the past, but that he's gonna come and keep the promise of the future that's gonna return. So Father, I love you and I thank you for this season that we're in. God, would you give us more than nostalgia? Would you give us more than temporary escapism? God, would you give us hope that is anchored in the reality of a coming king. And Lord, would you make us more like the Magi that are able to see what is happening, that are willing to move toward it as it happens. And Lord, as we wait, would you help us to wait as worshipers in spirit and truth. Uh, Lord, fill our homes right now as we worship. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.